And now, coming to you live from the worship room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Charlotte Strand, Gary K. Wolf on the Coot Street Podcast! We need some 1930s radio music to go with that sort of archaic microphone sound that you managed to get by doing that. But um, this is going to be one of our last podcasts before we have to take a hiatus because of your glamorous vacation to Tuscany and my glamorous uh, uh, trips to Kansas City and Seattle and Boston and things like that. Yeah, I think for the first time in about six years, we've hit a bump in our scheduling. I mean, these we've always been pretty regular. I mean, you know, we take a little bit of time off at Christmas, but mm. I think this is the first time when we've really hit a a spot where we're going to have to take a chunk of time off. So we're going to have like four weeks off, I think, between late June and mid July, and then we're mm-hmm. back for a couple of weeks. Then we're off to, of course, you know, Worldcon, and there'll be another. There may well be a couple of weeks off there as well. We'll see how it goes. Although we might get some in the can at Worldcon as we have in past Worldcons. Oh, I think we'll get some some podcasts so, done there. We're going to start getting that all set up. But uh, I'm going to be in Sydney for a weekend when I doubt that there will be a podcast, and then um, San Francisco. And then the following week we're in Kansas, mm-hmm. Kansas itself, and I don't know that we'll podcast from Kansas City, so it'll be the weekend after that when we get back home. Yeah. But... Um, and I, although I'm not going anywhere as glamorous as uh, at this Tuscany, uh, I will be at the Locus Awards in a couple of weeks. Uh, and um, at, at, at ReaderCon, where I will, I, I, I believe I'll be interviewing Kim Powers, the guest of honor there, because oh, fantastic. Um, which is fun because I've I've never actually done an interview on stage with him before, and he's one of those people that's delightful to talk to about his fiction. Uh, that seems to know exactly what he's doing, and who's, interestingly enough, uh, you know, produced a bit of short fiction in the last few months, which is very rare for him. So I'll be interested in yeah. uh, seeing that. Well, and, I mean, uh, and, and, and it would actually make sense. I should mention that. Maybe you should record it for yes. the podcast. Maybe we should do that. I will look into that. Absolutely. It does seem just as a side of sideline. Maybe it's just me, but his new novel for this year, Medusa's Web, seems to have disappeared without a trace. Uh, it doesn't seem to have had a lot of impact, and and he's got a couple of uh, uh, novellas, like I say, which are unusual, but they're again not they're not major works. The last the the, the last of his Victorian fantasies, I guess, or his nineteenth century fantasies, was Hide Me Among the Graves, which I did like quite a bit. Um, and there was a bit of the escapes in that as well. But I, I think one of the reasons will be interesting to talk because I don't know what he's up to now. And the kind of thing, the uh, kind of ultimate history that he was doing for a while. Are you still there? Yeah. Okay. Uh, seems to, um, the kind of thing he was doing with novels like Declare um, seems to be something he's, He's not done lately, so I'm, I'm very curious to see you know, what he's up to. But he's also one of these writers who has produced, just speaking of, uh, of, of, of a subject that you raised on Facebook, who's produced a very significant body of work over, what, 30-some years now? Yeah. And um, has he ever received a Life Achievement Award from the no. World Fantasy Convention? He has not yet received it. I would assume he probably would. 
uh, it's probably worth touching on if we're going to talk about the Life Achievement Award and why we're discussing it. It's actually the time and thing to yes. for a little bit of coherence to the discussion, Gary. Not a Cood Street specialty, but let's try it. Uh, we'll right, see. right now, if you are a member of the World Fantasy Convention to be held in Columbus, Ohio, or you're a member of last year's World Fantasy Convention, you may nominate for the World Fantasy Awards. And the ballot went out about a week ago. And it's a very short, short nominating period. It actually ends on the 15th of June. I know, and I have yet to fill out my ballot as well. And I've already sent mine back. But, and actually I regret that slightly because I would make a change now. Uh, but one of the categories they ask you to nominate for is Life Achievement Award. And you can no nominate mm -hmm. several people. And there will be two awards presented, as there always are. And the criteria for selecting what's, is they must have had a significant impact on the field of fantasy. Fair enough. Mm -hmm. They must be 62 years or older, and they must be alive in the year of nomination. Now, what that means is the no nominations are usually announced in August of the, of the given year. Right. So if they had died, say, up through to July of 2016, you know, anybody who, like, say, died in the next four weeks would actually be eligible still. So... Off the top of my head, someone like, say, David Hartwell, who passed away earlier in the year, would be eligible. Yeah. So that that's the why of it. We were, you know, I'd started thinking, well, who do, who can I think of who would be eligible? And one of the people that I always campaign for is Howard Waldrop. I look at the Lucia Shepard example, who was a major writer who hit 70 years of age, and uh -huh. by all that is fair and reasonable, should have received a Life Achievement Award at some point. No one anticipated him dying as young as he did, and no. very sadly, he doesn't isn't recognized with the award. It's one of the reasons why I think the list of of winners when you see it, or, or recipients, not winners, the list of recipients is quite odd and patchy. There are people who would think... It's patchy partly because, partly because in the early years of the award, it veered very much toward the horror end of the sure. fantasy genre. Which is a legitimate thing, I and mean, that's fine. It's just there's no scope for them to make it up, if you like. I mean, you'd think life achievement. Tolkien would have life achievement. Well, no, Tolkien didn't. Tolkien died in, like, 1977 or something. Didn't happen. Right. Um, you'd think, I mean, weirdly, you'd think that some of the big commercial names might have it, and they don't. And you could go back and forth about why. Tim Powers is a fine example of someone who you would think would get it. I think he was born in the, uh, about 1950, so he would be about the right age to start being eligible for it. Uh, and presumably his partner in crime, James P. Blaylock as well, would be eligible. Yeah. Uh, and you could even put forward a case that William Ashbless would be a fine nominee. However... Well, I think the argument... Go, yeah, okay, no, go, what you're saying. go on with your... Well, I was going to say, however, the person that I brought up on Facebook was uh -huh. Michael Bishop. Michael Bishop for 30 years was a major, major voice in the field, I think. Released very major science fiction novels, fantasy novels, major pieces of short fiction, spectacular pieces like Apartheid Superstrings and Mordecai Thabana that he did for Chris Rush's Pulp House back in the day. Um, mm -hmm. Terrific novels, uh, his AIDS novel, uh, Unicorn Mountain, which is brilliant. And then his great uh, Frankenstein novel, Brittle Innings, which strangely is the last major no the last novel to appear under his name at all until this year. So it's been, what, 1994 till now, 22 years or something. And this, uh, this year's as a young adult. 
uh, That's right. from a small press. Joel, Joel, I can't remember the title. I don't have it in front of me here. So there you go. Um, this Michael but, Bishop is being... But, yeah, sorry. Yep. Okay, no, the, the, here's, the, here's my question about Michael Bishop, and it's a question about the World Fantasy Life Achievement Awards in general. The Nebula Grand Master Award pretty much is global. It can cover all of fantasy and all of science fiction. And there was some controversy years ago when fantasy was brought into the fold. World fantasy has more or less defined itself by more or less excluding science fiction. And a good deal of what Michael Bishop has written is science fiction. It's, I mean, there, there, are, there are some classic um, fantasy works. There's, there are novels like, what, Unicorn Mountain. Um, but by and large, isn't the bulk of his work actually science fiction? Uh, a large amount of Bishop's work is, and I think this is the same argument for Robert Silverberg not being considered. Mm -hmm even mm -hmm. though he's a, quite likely a very fine uh, recipient. I think what you'd hope that would happen is that the judges would take a broader view. Uh, they certainly have given the award in the past to people who have been very active in science fiction but also contributed in fantasy. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a reasonable position. You know, They gave it to Sherry Tepper. They gave it to Tanith Lee. They gave it to George Martin, uh, all of mm. whom have been active in science fiction. And I thought, didn't Gene Wolfe just get it last year? Gene Wolfe did get one. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, he's certainly a, a major science fiction writer, you know, as much as a major fantasy writer. So, I mean, you, yes, I mean, you could argue with, with Bishop that he's primarily science fiction, but I don't think that undercuts the value of his contribution to fantasy. And I think, I, to belabor a point, if I may, this is why I think that the the uh, Academy, as it were, made a mistake in not giving Charles Brown an award. Well, okay, the contributions to the field question, which certainly raises the issue of whether uh, David Hartwell should be on uh, under consideration for this year, does go beyond uh, authors. And one of the things that the World Fantasy governing board, which was largely, um, at least the spokesperson that I dealt with for that governing board was David, um, wanted to recognize not just authors, people who contributed significantly to the field, who might be editors, who might be um, uh, journalists in the case of Charles, who might run the science fiction book club. Uh, and and, and, and they've, they've tried to exclude people from other media, from films and that sort of thing. But I think you're absolutely right. I think looking at the broader scope of influence, um, you could say that David Hartwell is primarily, and he always described himself primarily as a science fiction editor, but he edited some significant fantasy works and writers who produce a significant amount of fantasy. So uh, my question is, can you really make that distinction at all? Anymore? Or is that a historical artifact? I think you can make a distinction between people who contribute to science fiction and contributing people who contribute to fantasy and people who contribute to the broader fantasy field as a whole. Now, mm -hmm. in terms of the case for David Hartwell, the case for David Hartwell is actually incredibly compelling. I think it is. Uh, there are the major works of fantasy that he edited for major publishing houses. He was a major fantasy editor, without a doubt. Mm -hmm. There were the major works of fantasy that he preserved through Greg Press, Lest we forget the, you know, the first hardcover editions of the uh, Faf and the Grey Master books. These sorts of things were published through Greg Press. Right. Uh, he, certainly they reviewed, covered, and considered uh, fantasy in the Little Magazine and the New York Review of Science Fiction. 
certainly uh, he played a broader part. And lest we forget, in founding and helping run the World Fantasy Convention itself, he performed a, an enormous service to, to the field. And, and looking at... Or to just, looking, uh, and uh, one last uh, thing. As an anthologist, he put together uh, the best horror anthology that I've ever seen, The Dark Descent. Mm-hmm. And probably for it alone would be a, a worthy recipient. I think it's absolutely true, and that's exactly... When I was trying to interrupt you, I was trying to interrupt you so that I could mention The Dark Descent, um, which which you mentioned already anyway. But I think you're right. I think there's a point at which uh, that anthology, along with um, a handful of others, there was one by Kirby Macaulay, redefined horror as a literary genre, helped define what we now think of as literary horror, uh, much to the... Uh, Benefit of, of, of writers from uh, uh, from Peter Straub to Laird Barron, who are who are working in that field, writing extremely literate, well thought out, well written stories. So to some extent, um, he helped make horror respectable in an era which it was during which it was largely dominated by the splatter punks. If anybody remembers them, well, that's true. I mean, so, yeah. Let's face it. I mean, David was always a voice, in my opinion, and others may disagree. He was always a voice for a conservative view of the field. Yes. Uh, and I don't mean that in some kind of reactionary right-wing kind of way. I mean small-c conservative as in an old view. He was a proponent of what we, what I abbreviate as the <laughs> back continuum of science fiction. He was certainly a proponent of a traditional view of the evolution of horror which he mm-hmm. states and defends quite clearly, probably better than in any other anthology he ever did in yes. The Dark Descent with Catherine Kramer. So I think it would actually be unfortunate if David isn't one of the two recipients this year. It's tragic that he's not alive to be considered, but since he could never be considered again, I, th- I think they should... Seriously, seriously consider it. Uh, the think, fact that off yeah. the top of our heads we can come up with such a compelling case shows how obvious uh, a thing it is. It, it does seem to be obvious. The only issue that uh, I would imagine uh, would... I don't know. Is there a sense... You've been a judge, I've been a judge. Do you ever have a sense that there was an effort to avoid having to do posthumous awards? They've done some. Sure. Uh, I mean, my year, the example we had was um, Paul Anderson. Paul Anderson passed away the year that we were that, that we were judging. Uh, I think in May or June of that year, mm-hmm. and there was for a little while, I think, a, a feeling that there was a pressure that we should pick him simply because he had passed away that year. Um, I think the wild card that you can't process very easily is the process, as I recall it, and this was two thousand and one. So it may well have changed completely. Mm-hmm. Has two, there two people will be given the Life Achievement Award, and there are two different processes in play. There is yes, the there World Fantasy Awards Committee and Conventions process, which right. I don't know anything about. I don't know how they come about that, uh, and that has tended to be exactly the kind of people you were talking about earlier, Gary. That David. You know, was supported mm-hmm. people who were you know, the Everett Blealers of the field, and the Donald uh, 
grants and whatever else. The Garn Wilsons yeah, who were, good. you know, mm. uh, people who contributed to the structure of the field. That was David's kind of thing. And then there's five people who are emailing or sitting in a room and it's whoever they're passionate about, honestly. Because what I remember is you, someone comes in. I mean, I, I, and I, I kind of regret this and I have to pay absolute credit to Stephen Erickson for this. Steve Erickson came in and he was the one going, Glenn Cook should get a Life Achievement Award. Uh-huh. Nobody else was interested in listening at the time. I think in retrospect, he was correct. And I think Cook should receive one. Mm-hmm. But it's an example. You've got, it, it all takes one person. You need a kind of thing that sort of takes fire where everybody sort of goes, yes, that makes sense. And uh-huh. I mean, you're talking about the Jane Yolen process with Ellen Clages this year or whatever, where they all went, damn, how did she not get one? We have to give her exactly. one. It'll have to be whatever that wild card is. I, I, yeah. And the year that I was a judge, one of the names that came up inevitably was was Terry Pratchett. And the sense was, because he had, well, this is sometime after the diagnosis of Alzheimer's, mm-hmm. and there was clearly a sense that we don't want this to be a posthumous award for him. Uh, so, so he did get it that year. He, yeah. he, he got one of the awards uh, that was voted on. So I, so I think that... To some extent, depending on the nominations from the floor, as it would be, and the nominations from the committee, uh, that could mitigate against David's uh, getting the award. I hope it doesn't. Can, can I be honest with you? My my recollection is that the nominating ballots recommendations for life achievement have very little impact. Uh, I think that's probably true. Uh, but again, it depends on the committee. It may prompt them with somebody that they hadn't thought of, but uh, the judges who were announced back in February what Laird Barron, Ronnie Graf, Elaine Isaac, Kay Kenyon, and Conrad Walufsky, right? Now, uh-huh. I've met Laird, I know Ronnie, and I haven't met the others. Um, I've got no idea who they may consider to be suitable or interesting or uh, worthy. Uh, and I think it's always worthwhile mentioning people so that they don't forget, so they don't fall out of the, the dialogue too much. I mean, it's a very common thing to have happen. And so... Hopefully, you know, they, they will come up with somebody that will all go, that was the right choice. But I think Hartwell would be a great choice. Michael Bishop, perhaps. Con- uh, Howard Walter, perhaps. The other one that we're mentioning, and I've never heard anybody mention him, and it actually surprises me, is M. John Harrison. Well, again, the problem there is there's not a great deal of fantasy in that uh, You know, wouldn't it cover the Viriconium stuff and everything? The Viriconium stuff, I, I, I think that's true. Uh, I, I think that Compared to the, uh, the, the the series that ended with light, and and it, it's it seems to me his greatest impact has been in science fiction. Although, again, if you're talking about impact, uh, M. John Harrison has been a major influence on on most hard science fiction writers in the UK, on China Mieville, on most horror writers, on most fantasy writers. In other words, the impact of writers of this sort, and I think you just have to describe them as literary writers because that's what they are. Uh, really goes beyond genre, which goes back to my idea of can you really make the distinctions that 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 were fairly firmly in place when world fantasy began. That is, here's horror, here's fantasy, here's science fiction. I uh, think world fantasy will always skew a bit towards horror, and, I mean, you see that in the judges' selections. I think that's true. Uh, and yeah. that's fair enough. I, don't, I have no quibble with that. That's the nature of, of the thing. I would also throw into the hat Chris Priest. Chris Priest is another very good example. In fact, um, this segues into something else. But before we segue, I want to come back to it. But yeah, Chris Priest would be a great okay. example. What are we segueing into now? 
Well, before we segue, let's finish up with this life achievement thing. I'll be very eager to see who gets put forward. I'm sure I will disagree. <laughs> because you always have people you want. I, oh. I want to see Howard Waldrop get it before he dies, you know. And yeah, well, anybody over 70, sorry, Gary, is, is, is fragile. Um, I resent that, sir. Well, put it this way. Anyone over 70 is probably a little bit statistically more likely to lose their chance to get a life achievement award than somebody under 30. I mentioned this. Okay, that, 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 that's a reasonable point. Um, I mentioned this earlier on the podcast a few weeks ago. I was at uh, Gene Wolf's 85th birthday party at his daughter Terry's house, and he's still frighteningly more intelligent than I am. Now, I know he started out at a higher place. My point is, there's no deterioration. I've known Gene for a long time. And all that's happened in those years is that he's become more tolerant of the rest of us and sweeter. <laughs> all I can say is, I mean, given where Gene is starting from, he'd have to fall a long way before he got any <laughs> down well, to my level. So, you know, that's probably true. That's probably true. And, well. you know, judging from you know the most recent novel, he hasn't actually lost any of his sharpness or his clarity or his talent, which is actually quite remarkable. No, and the invention is still as unusual as ever. His most recent novel is about a guy who lives in a library and can be checked out, and he's actually a clone of a dead author. Yeah. And the next novel is a second half of that, uh, which he's working title is Enter a Library Alone. Uh, but it's a completely original idea, worked out with the same kind of rigor and with you know, an enormous opening up of a whole world behind it, which is never explained to you. You have to sort of yeah. suss out exactly what kind of post-apocalyptic world this is. Um, but, but at any rate, uh, yeah, Gene already has one. Uh, I'm not coming up with any other names. It seems to me that... Oh, uh, look, there are, there are names that feel left field. I mean, uh, that probably you'll look at me and go, I don't know about that. But, I mean, there are people like Catherine Kurtz who is mm -hmm. a major voice in the evolution of epic fantasy. There are all, there are all kinds of writers from the, whose careers really kicked off in the, say, late 70s, early 80s, who've not been recognized. I mean, I know Robin McKinley, I think, was recognized with a Life Achievement Award. Uh -huh. Diana Wynne-Jones was, rec was uh, recognized. But there are um, a range of other writers from around that time. C.J. Cherry, who's written a lot of fantasy, actually. I was going to say that there, we've mentioned Bishop and, and, and Mike Harrison and uh, and other people largely known for, for science fiction, but, but both Cherry and Bujold have written a substantial amount of fantasy. Yeah, Bujold's probably been, a little early still. I, I don't know how old she is, but she would be just a little early to be considered yeah, eligible, but would be a very early. worthy recipient. Yeah. Um, Pamela Sargent, I think, wrote some fantasy, I think. And I mean, I, I, mm -hmm. honestly... I would have to go back now and have a look for other nominees who would be, you know, worthy, you know, or who would be, mm. sound reasonable, probably. Be, that's a probably, yeah, worthy is a really terrible way of putting it. It'd probably be better to say, sound like reasonable, uh, you know, recipients, uh, you know, who appear to have made a, a significant contribution to the evolution of the field over time. So, and we're probably, but you and I are probably, since we're not heavy horror readers, we're probably leading out some major names in that field as well. Well, 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 someone like Quinn Yarbrough, I mean, was a recipient just recently. Yeah, Quinn Yarbrough is a good example of the kind of person that we're talking about who's all over the map yeah. uh, in terms of fantasy, science. Susan McKee Charnas has written 
what amounts to horror, fantasy, and science fiction. Um, and again, not having been that visible in the last few years, uh, not having a kind of franchise series the way Quinn Yarbrough does, yep. uh, seems to have dropped off of a lot of people's radar. But the significance of what she wrote uh, during her career, uh, as we talked about with her on, on, on the podcast um, we did at uh, World Fantasy, is, is significant. And what so about people like a yeah. lot of there's people like Lisa Tuttle, people like Margaret Mahi, um, mm -hmm. who I think is still writing. Um, all kinds of people. Um, and then people who are on the cusp of getting there. I mean, uh, they're probably a little bit young now, but I mean, I would imagine Ellen Kushner would be coming up. I would it. imagine Ellen would come up at some point. I would imagine at some point Frances Harding would come up. Well, Frances is still much younger. Well, I know she's, but I'm, I'm, there's a career there which is leading toward the age of 62. Now, I'm, I'm not sure that these people are holding their breaths, waiting to get a world fantasy. It doesn't matter. What there is, right? Uh, Ellen Datlow has a Life Achievement Award. Terry Wendling yes, she does. does not. And she's, I mean, she's younger. She's still in her 50s, mm. right? Terry Wendling must surely definitely one day get it. If Terry oh, Windling sure. must someday, one day get it, so too must some of the people that she promoted through her various publishing ventures with Ace and Tor. I mean, Ch Charles mm -hmm. DeLint surely must get one at some point, sure. you would think. And there are a couple of others who, who follow on in the, that same same space. Um, and a, like edge cases, Roberta McAvoy would be one. Um, mm -hmm. who, who may well be someone you would consider. So all kinds of people. Now, the thing I was going to segue, because I think there's not much else to say about life achievement other than we wish the judges well and await their choices when they're announced. Uh -huh. And, I mean, we've both been judges, so if it sounds like... Actually, we should say this. If it sounds like we are going to be judgmental about the judges, we're not. We've sat in those dark rooms and we've had those discussions and... You get a feel for how they go, go how, you know, how difficult it is. So honestly, all they have, at least from me, and I'm sure from you, is uh, empathy and respect. It's a difficult job. It's a difficult and challenging um, job because you know you're going to get second guess no matter what oh, you sure. come up. I mean, that, that, that actually, one of the, this, you know, one of the things that's nice about not being directly involved in the awards for me, it's where I actually enjoy them. Being nominated is a great honor, so this is not that. But the great joy about not being involved is you can then simply handicap them for fun. And that's a great pleasure to be able to sit there and go, here's the world fantasy ballot. Look how they got it wrong. That They missed this novel. They missed that novella. This one's actually better than that one, in my opinion. How could they possibly have chosen that person? You know, so... Oh, I do have one other recommendation for the world fantasy uh -huh. awards. Because Should I tell you that I did my ballot? You did your ballot. I've not done mine. I need to do that. Now, let's see if I've got it here. I don't know if I do. Well, maybe I don't. Uh, I can tell you that I have nominated for Best Professional Achievement our friend, colleague, and editor, Liza Trombi. Ah, excellent. And, I mean, I realize you you wouldn't ask what the case for Liza Trombi is, but I always feel I that one of the blind spots in the field is because Locus calls itself the magazine of... Uh, science fiction and fantasy, the fantasy element and support is always undervalued, underconsidered. And mm -hmm. yet, over the years, uh, there's been a lot of support for fantasy in the magazine. And, and I think 
you could make the case that Liza has has probably been more let me put not not more supportive let me say less ideological about her attitudes toward fantasy and science fiction than Charles Brown was Charles Brown did not have a great deal of fondness for fantasy unless it was by certain writers that he had an enormous amount of respect for that's right and it could be Harrison and you know, she has been heading that magazine since he passed away in 2009 mm. and was a very major part of it beforehand, but certainly has been running the show for six, seven years now, whatever it is, eight years. Mm-hmm. I think people should really, I think the judges should stop and have a little think and consider it, and people who are nominated should consider. And if you like, I, I will tell you, these are my picks for the top five no- fantasy novels of 2015. Okay. By all means, blindly copy me if you wish. I mean, I'm not doing a, you know, a happy puppy, but... Shall we, shall, shall, shall we pause for a moment while our listeners get their pads and and pencils out? Yeah, well, I'm not going to post this online, Gary, so they're better. Or they can just okay. play, they just slowly play this back, this part of the recording back and forth. Yeah, okay. My, uh, my five novels in, well, no particular order were The Lie Tree by Francis Harding, which is mm-hmm. a wonderful, wonderful book. It's an amazing book. Uprooted by Naomi Novik, mm-hmm. which is a revelation, I think. I mean, her Temeraire books are, are entertaining, but it really is a wonderful book. Half the World by Joe Abercrombie, which is the middle of the the half series that he did. Yeah. The Shattered King. Sea trilogy. And which I love. I love it. I love the characters in that story. Signal to Noise by Sylvia Moreno Garcia. Mm-hmm. And Sorcerer to the Crown by Zen Cho. Interesting. Uh, the Zen Cho is especially interesting because she was uh, obviously last year's Crawford Award winner. And it's just a hugely entertaining um Regency period romance, basically, that's very funny and very... Uh, very well done. Uh, very adroit. Very subverting. Yeah. Uh, well, one of the things that I think is interesting and is a trend that we should talk about at a future podcast, now we don't have enough time, is the way writers in Zen Show is doing this with a lot of the conventions of Regency romance. To some extent, a lot of what the material she's working with is the same material as Susanna Clark used in Jonathan Strange and sure. Mr. Norrell. All of which is still used in the sense of honoring and subverting fantasy traditions at the same time. Yeah. Uh, we've talked about this before. There are there, there's a whole meme going on now of people honoring and subverting Lovecraft stories with Kit Johnson, with Victor Laval, with uh, uh, Matt Hoff, Daryl Gregory, with uh, yeah, there are all kinds of so so. It's an interesting way of dealing with the past of the field. Um, it's not parodic. It's not. Um, it's not the way Harry Harrison dealt with space opera, for example, which was just demolishing it by turning it into uh, absurdity, basically. Star Smashers of the Galaxy Rangers. You know, it's not enough to dismantle Edmund Hamilton because that's too easy. What people are trying to do now is to look at these traditions, uh, which have real value. There's real appeal in either Regency fantasies or Lovecraft fantasies, and to recognize that appeal while recognizing what's wrong with it at the same time. Sure. I mean, even if you stepped away from the language of what's wrong with it, there is an element of we are going to reimagine, we're going to to colonize it, we're going to Mm -hmm. claim it, not even reclaim it. I don't think you could say you're reclaiming it. Certainly claiming the space and uh, becoming part of it. And this actually 
is is a really interesting issue. It's a, and we touched on in our previous conversation about mm-hmm. Lovecraft being looked at, and that is this the whole issue of how copyright stifles this process. It does to some extent, yes, to a great you know, extent. Uh, Lovecraft being essentially out of copyright, the Cthulhu mythos being out of copyright, makes it possible for a Kids Johnson, a Victor Laval, a, a Matt Huff, a, you know, a, K- a Caitlin Cannon, yeah. whoever else, uh, Daryl Gregory, uh, to look for a new space. I mean, uh, in there and, and to find another way to, if you like, mulch it into the, into the, into contemporary culture. And that's what they're doing. They're, they're, they're making it contemporary. They're keeping it alive. And it means what the great service it does for Lovecraft actually is it keeps Lovecraft alive as a thing in the field far beyond, which I think anyone could ever have imagined back in the thirties or forties or fifties. Um, and probably will always stay alive. There's something really primal and effective about the original Lovecraft material. And that's why we're still responding to it. I think that's true. But but, but part of what's going on is also, it doesn't need to be reclaimed for the Lovecraft cult, which has always been there and will always be there. But for the general reader, to deal with Lovecraft, and this is not simply a matter of what happens to the World Fantasy Award statuette or the World Fantasy Award bludgeon, as I like to think of it, the old one, um, is that Lovecraft was problematical um, in, in, in a lot of serious ways. As there, there were no women in his stories, so Kids Johnson sort of corrects that. There were no, his, his attitudes were racist, so Victor Laval addresses that. The idea is to point out that you can have that impact in a story without the unpleasant aspects of it. In other words, it's, it's kind of, it's a little bit like what the new space opera did with space opera as opposed to what, let's say, Harry Harrison did with Space Opera. Harry Harrison just wanted to make fun of it. He was writing at a time when it was it was kind of nostalgic, but it was basically utterly silly. Um, by the time you get Mike Harrison and Paul McCauley and Al Reynolds and so forth and so on, they really loved Space Opera, and they wanted to retain the good parts of it. Well, I think that's probably the, one of the things that can get overlooked in this conversation. And that is that these aren't necessarily angry repudiations at all. They're acts of love. No, exactly. Uh, they are someone saying, I want to be in that too, irrespective of what the original author may have thought. Mm. Uh, they wanted to be able to claim, to colonize, to be part of it. And certainly I feel, and she's more than capable of saying this herself, let's say with a dream quest of Velvet Bow, it's Kidge saying, I was fascinated by this. I was engaged by this. I loved it to some degree, but mm-hmm. I was excluded from it. So now I'm opening it up to me and people like me. Yeah, here's and a having read interviews, I've never spoken to Victor Laval, but having read interviews, I get the same kind of a motivation for him. Prob- uh, you know, so and the same kind of a motivation for Matt Huff, and for I mean, less so for Daryl, which is YA reimagining, which is fun. Well, yeah, but. So, it, 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 it's claiming Lovecraft for a different audience in a different kind of way. And, and I think it's it's also doing something which I think is crucial, given the debate over the world fantasy in particular, and the debate focusing on Lovecraft, which is not a new debate. We've had the debate, the, the similar debate went on about Kipling decades ago. And that is that you want to have all the good things in the stories, and you want to be able to separate the literature from the individual. There was a famous quotation from uh, some art historian once about how uh, you know, everybody with any good taste would love to have a Van Gogh on the wall of their living room. Almost nobody in their right mind would want Van Gogh in their living room. 
And I think it's the same same attitude people have toward Lovecraft. So let me ask you this, Gary. After having spent 10 or 15 minutes lauding this trend, lauding these writers, did you ever think you'd spend a, qu a quarter of a podcast applauding fan fiction? Um, I'm not terribly surprised about it. Uh, I don't think... It, it, fan fiction is an invention uh, of, of the post-Star Trek era, really. The idea of fan fiction, the idea of writing fiction, which is in honor of other fiction, was not invented by media people. It was not invented by Trekkies. It was not invented by slash writers. It was somebody once described Milton's Paradise Lost as fan fiction for the Bible, which it is. It, it explains stuff that isn't actually there in the Bible. Um, you know, so, so, so the idea of rewriting uh, Shakespeare, that's been done since at least the 19th century. Um, Science fiction, to some extent, I think, has just shied away from it because there is a separate tradition of fan fiction that, in one direction, points toward Fifty Shades of Grey, and in another direction, points toward something like the the Dream Quest of Velvet Bowl. One is very literary, one is very programmatic. <laughs> I'm not sure I've got anything particular to add to that, other than to say that <laughs> I know a lot of people who read both kinds of fan fiction, uh, and it is interesting that there's a spectrum. There is, and I think that's important. And I, 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 I think that uh, you know, almost it seems to me like any number of science fiction writers I've talked to over the years feel like at some point in their career they need to try to do some Heinlein kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, or there's another group of writers, uh, which includes some people that are very well respected, Pulitzer Prize nominated writers like Kelly Link, who want to do a Bradbury story. Um, so there's a fanish element to a lot of this stuff, but it's it's literary homage. It's part of part of what literature has always done and will always do. Let me ask you this question: In a time when, at least based on my current knowledge of it, um, copyright persists till seventy years after the death of the author, right? Do you think that estates make a mistake? in stifling the ability of people to write works that riff off the original works by a creator. So, for example, you know, let's say, and this is semi-arbitrary based on mm. what I'm saying a minute ago, let's say Stranger in a Strange Land. Mm -hmm. It could be interesting to riff off that and do something different. It but would you be can't. Great. You can't. There's yeah. no way the Heinlein estate would permit you to do so. No. Do you think that's a mistake? I have, of course, I think it's a mistake. I, I think the idea, the idea that estates have, and I've, I've, I've come up against literary estates in a couple of cases. Um, the one hand, is, the, the idea is that the the words of the author, the author's original intent, should be preserved. All that is unarguable. Uh, this goes back to whether you should preserve the original manuscript of Moby Dick, or should you actually. The point is, you can do both. Where, mis where estates tend to make a mistake is suppressing anything other than the canonical text, because that discourages creativity and basically shuts down the discussion. And the one thing Heinlein was especially good about in science fiction was starting discussions. Uh, but you also think all that Heinlein would have said, sure, go write a spin-off I Will Fear No Evil? Um, by, the, by the time he was that age, I don't think he would have said that because he got old and cranky. I think of the younger Heinlein, if somebody had said, look, the roads must roll doesn't really work. Let's rethink of it this way. 
he might have said, go for it. I have no idea, but it's interesting to think about. I mean, you know, both Stephen Baxter and Gregory Benford have basically been writing Arthur Clarke fan fiction. Um, is there and, a, yeah. But some of it collaborated with Clark. I mean, obviously, the spinning, spinning off of Clark stuff. And, you know, in, in a case like that, where you're not talking about, let's face it, the pristine, inimitable, uh, graceful prose of Clark is not something you worry about. You worry about the ideas. And, and I, playing with ideas is what science fiction has always done. Playing with other people's ideas. That's true. I mean, and unfortunately, the, it seems, and I can only think of one or two possible exceptions, that the managed attempt at this doesn't work. You know, if you look at the tribute val volumes, mm -hmm. where authors maybe are allowed within a certain prescribed form format yeah. to riff off the original work, they tend to get be very sterile, you know, and, and not have that kind of natural life to them that you get out in the wilds of you know, people just writing whatever they want. I think it tends to, it, it, it varies according to the tribute volumes, and you're right, there are a lot of them, they've been very popular. Uh, there's, a, there's a tendency toward unconscious parody. I mean, basically, a lot of writers today can write a Ray Bradbury sentence or a Ray Bradbury paragraph. The Bradbury tribute volume had too much faux Bradbury in it. Uh, the Gene Wolfe volume, people were skirting around the issue because God knows they didn't want to be compared to Gene Wolfe, but there were a couple of stories in it, including Michael Swanwick's, that were brilliant in their own way and clearly were in dialogue with Gene Wolfe. But you have, to, you have to have a lot of confidence to do that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, th by the way, the, the one that I think really worked, oddly enough, was Foundation's Friends, which is the Asimov that volume that Greenberg did. Mm -hmm. And also, in fact, the, the Tolkien volume that he did, Stories After the King. Right. Both of them were very fine. And there was, I think, at the last major contribution that Scott, Scott Card made to the science fiction field was his foundation story in that book, which yes, is actually very, very good. Mm -hmm. um, and, but again, here you're, here you're dealing with a writer whose life was in his ideas. The foundation, the whole foundation universe was a collection of ideas and not a collection of especially compelling stories. So by and large, and I probably said this in the review at the time, the contributors to Foundation's Friends were mostly better writers of sentence-by-sentence -sentence prose than Asimov was. Let me ask you this, because this occurred to me a moment ago. Do you think that by stifling this process through copyright, and I understand why you want to assert copyright. You want, mm -hmm. first of all, to preserve your own income and your own claim on your material. And you probably, the estate probably has a fairly reasonable feeling that, well, if so-and-so is going to take Stranger in Strange Land and retell it from the perspective of a female Martian or something, mm -hmm. well, then shouldn't the Highland estate make some money on that too? I can kind of get that. But does it kind of seal the tomb on them a bit? I think it does. I, th I think what you're doing is taking the person out of the dialogue, you know, Heinlein is is enormously important. Sturgeon is important. Bradbury, Clark, all these people are important to the extent that people keep talking about them. Now, I'm not sure that copyright by itself shuts down that discussion. Mm. Uh, you, you can you you can't rewrite Stranger in a Strange Land from another point of view. You can certainly write something that is very evidently a takeoff on that. Uh, you could. Yeah, there's a difference between copyright and, uh, and trademark, for example. Mark Twain knew that his works were going to go in public domain, so he trademarked the name Mark Twain, which does not expire in the United States, 
which means that anybody who wants to can publish a novel by Samuel Clemens, but if you want to say it's by Mark Twain, you're paying money to the family now. Yeah. Um, and that would be very clever if Fritz Leiber had decided to put trademark Fofford in the Grey Mouser. He could be making, a, no, he, would he make any money? Not really, because everybody who does a Fofford and the Grey Mouser does their own version of it. There's a, there's a Michael Chabon version of it. There's a Michael Swanwick version of it. There's a Joe Abercrombie version of it. And in other words, anybody who knows the history of the field knows somebody who's riffing on Fritz Leiber. It's true. It's true. Um, I mean, I, I don't know where to go next with this other than to say that I, I don't know how the estates let go. I mean, I, I can tell you, I had an experience where I wanted to do a tribute volume for somebody. And the estate oh. wanted to own the copyright on the stories. That was their condition. That's awkward. And you're kind of going, well, no one's going to do that. No one's going to write the story and just give you the copyright on it. And they're like, well, if they want to write in the world of XYZ, that's what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it doesn't happen. They begin to get forgotten. And this is where, this is what I was going to say. The proliferation of publication to the point of individual meaninglessness right yeah the point where there's such a volume of everything being made available that you don't even notice it happening now makes it very difficult for any for a, a an estate if you like to have any impact consider in 1997 um, north atlantic press began publishing the 12 volume collected stories of theodore sturgeon right now sturgeon is remembered but is falling out of currency right the publication of that series, the commencement of that series, made a real impact. I think it did within the field, not in the field, sure. But I mean, that's that's the first place where you have to make a splash, isn't it? I mean, well, yeah, that's true. Uh, if, if the field, if people within the field aren't remembering someone particularly, then the likelihood that anybody else will is that much less. Now, I guess this comes. It came what about a dozen years or so after Ted had passed away. Mm -hmm. This year they've published six volumes of the collected stories of Clifford Simak. Mm -hmm. Barely heard about it. No. Nope. Uh, there's a three-volume collected stories of Greg Bear. Barely heard about it. Um, well, this is not. What was it? Ten or fifteen years ago, somebody published something like twenty volumes of Robert Block's collected short fiction, which was visible only to a small group of collectors, mostly within the horror field. Yeah. So I think it's hard to protect the reputation and keep a name alive. It's hard to keep a, keep a, a an older writer's name alive in the field today. There will be the deep scholars and deep readers who pay attention and are aware of it, and then you make this statement and say, well, of course, I know it, because, of course, you and I and many of our listeners, maybe all of our listeners are reading Block and Liber and Davidson yeah, and right. all these other people, right? Uh, and that's great. But for a lot of people, they don't. They've just disappeared or, or never existed, in fact. I mean, given no, that, it, 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 you know. You mentioned the North Press uh, series. In the middle of that of, of that 12 volumes, I'm not exactly sure where it occurred, but Vintage came out with a collection, I forgot who edited it, of Theodore Sturgeon's stories yeah. that really brought Sturgeon's attention to a somewhat wider audience. And a few years after that, uh, we've had Nesva doing these volumes all along, but a few years after that, um, I think the New York Review of Books Press published a collection of Robert Sheckley's stories. 
Oh, that's like, the kind of thing that needs to expand a reputation beyond the core group of people who remember it. I'm going to make a wild, completely on, you know, baseless on-research statement that I nonetheless suspect is true. Hmm. The single most effective act of archival science fiction publishing of the past quarter century was Nesfa Publishing in Australia by Cordwainer Smith. Why Nesfa's edition particularly? They were largely out of print prior to Nesfa. It was the first it was the first collection of all of them in a single volume. That's true. That may be true. It was picked up by the SF Book Club at a time when the SF Book Club was still effective. Ah, okay. Now I'm, I'm getting where you're going. And tens of thousands of copies went out into the world. Mm -hmm. It helped to cement his modern reputation. I think you're right. I think that's true. Uh, and partly that has to do with Cord Rainer Smith himself uh, and, and with the quirkiness because about the same time they were doing a very complete collection of Henry Kuttner, a two-volume complete collection of Frederick Brown, none of which seem to have had any significant impact on the way they remember now. Six volumes of Roger Zelazny. Yeah. They're up to about seven uh -huh. volumes now or eight volumes of Paul Anderson. I don't think anyone's even paying attention anymore, hardly. Well, the collectors are. I mean, Nesfa is not trying to write... It's not, it's not trying to create uh, bestsellers by any stretch of the imagination. Mm. They're trying to create a record. But they need to make money. They need to at least well, break even. I was going to say, let's be very careful. I mean, obviously, Nesva are the people who can talk about what they're there for. But my understanding about what they're there for is to, they are there to keep the flame alive. That is their thing, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, with um, Smith, they were spectacularly successful. And they did other really terrific books, lest, lest we even think for a second they didn't. Oh, um, yeah. Did a great Cornbluth, uh collection. Did mm -hmm. a really wonderful. He's gone blank. Zena uh, Henderson, the people, uh, the yeah. wonderful Zena Henderson collection, and some other stuff. Hal Clement and some others, but th there, were, there were major ones. Yeah, uh, and there were people out there doing stuff. But one, one, the reason where Nesfa actually were good in terms of preserving names and, and better than maybe other small presses or independent presses have been, is they have this commitment to keeping it all in print after they've put it out. It That's wasn't true. like, say, That's the best of Philip Jose Farmer comes out and disappears. Or mm -hmm. the Jack Vance Treasury comes out and disappears. Or the best of Ian MacDonald comes out and disappears. So, anyway. Well, hobby horses. Nessa has been... Yeah, and, and it's, 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 I've used it the same way. Nessa is a reference point. It's essentially a reference library, which in some cases preserves a reputation as... Or, or almost creates a reputation like Cord Rangerson, because suddenly these books you'd heard about were available all at once, and everybody, everybody seemed to read them. Uh, I don't think, to get back to our point about estates, I don't think this has anything to do with whether estates can interfere with. The, the, the one problem I've come across with estates, not to mention any specifically, is that they overestimate the reputation of the deceased author in question. Uh, they usually think the author's name is worth more than it is, that it's more widely recognized than it is, and most importantly, that the manuscripts should be preserved as the author intended, and not necessarily as they were published, which is a really problematical issue because when I'm looking at these Library of America volumes, you have the question always hanging out there, do you want to represent the book that was actually read by 
and influenced readers when it came out? Or do you want to represent the book that the author meant to publish, but that was messed up by editors and promotional sure. people and so forth? I, I think it's a bigger thing. Well, there's, there's another thing in there, or, or, or a side comment. I mean, I've observed a number of estates, and since we're being circumspect, we shall name no names. <laughs> Certainly I've seen estates where the, the, the author has passed away, and within 12 months they're expecting 10 times the payment that, the author themselves exactly. required. Exactly. Uh, which I think has always been a short-sighted approach. And we're both aware and we're being diplomatic of estates where it would appear as though, in fact, the sole goal of the people who have control of the estate is to prevent the author's work being published at all. It which is very frustrating. You know, you, there are th opportunities that come along where you think that could only build the reputation of the author and increase the value of the estate, frankly, but they don't mm -hmm. go along. The single smartest person I've ever encountered on this, and one of the smartest people I've ever encountered, frankly, is Robert mm -hmm. Silverberg. Mm -hmm. Now, I met Bob back in about 1993 or 4, and would only say we became friends with him probably a decade later, and I'm mm -hmm. good friends with his wife, Karen. His contemporary attitude last for the last decade at least was, every reprint is a good one. You know, get your work out there, Keep it out yeah. there. Uh, let it happen. Because then, you know, you're, you, you don't disappear from the universe. I mean, if, if I were to contact, or any editor, I think, were to contact the Sil Silverberg's business about reprinting one of his stories in a book or a magazine or wherever mm -hmm. else, and offered him whatever the basic going rate was, he would say yes almost as certainly. And he'd say yes because then he'd be read. Yes, and, and that's exactly what living authors realize that their estates frequently don't realize. Yeah. Living authors realize they have to get their work in front of readers and they have to expand their base of readers. Estates begin with the assumption that that base of readers is already there, it's in place, it's unchanging, and no matter how much, without sounding utterly cruel, you can't say to an estate representative or an estate agent, I'm sorry, but this writer doesn't have any commercial value at all anymore. But that's the case in many, too many cases. You, you can't say that, and it's difficult sometimes. I mean, I had this experience compiling Wings of Fire mm -hmm. uh, back with Marianne uh, some years ago. It's difficult to diplomatically get across the point that just being reprinted is valuable. Yes. Just appearing is valuable. I will say this in defense of estates, though, and I have this experience myself for the past couple of years with the R.A. Lafferty estate for Locust, which I'm involved with. Yeah. It's also easy when you're trying to deal with your estate to not be aware that they're not maybe a, folk, a coherent business quite often, that it may be the bottom priority on a list of priorities for that individual who's dealing with a whole bunch of other things at any time. Absolutely. So that well, happens, too. Individual involved. There may be twenty or thirty individuals who are being represented by an estate, yeah. uh, who have no sense of, 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 of proportion at all. All, all that's the case. Uh, uh, to get back to your original point, my sense is that, except in a few cases, um, which we have sort of circumspectly referred to, estates aren't damaging, uh, aren't doing any damages to people's reputations. I think the problem is getting the name out there. When you mention the Clifford Simak volumes that are coming out from Nesta, um, is anybody, is, I'm looking at Clifford Simak for the Library of America, that's all I can say until everything's uh, lined up. 
But is anybody reading him anymore? Um, if you go back and read him, he's very good. He did kind of pastoral Midwestern SF that's very honorable, very sort of uh, sweet is, uh, is one way of describing. It's something you don't want to lose from yeah. the tradition. And yet, I don't know if any, I don't know what, what is in print of his now other than the Nesta volumes. Well, actually, they're not actually Nesta. They're uh, Open Road Media. Oh, that's okay. Open Road is doing a lot of interesting stuff with ebooks. There's something true there. And POD. Um, but then the thing you've got to say there is that, you know, they're not getting that penetration. I mean, one of the problems with those kind of books, uh, you know, with, with, with not, well, not those kind, with the, the sort of stuff that you get from Open Road is it's easy for stuff to disappear into, you know, like into Amazon's. Like, if you stumble across it, it now exists, but you wouldn't otherwise know that it exists. You know, so right. um, partly it's a service. If you want to find an Octavia Butler book, for example, you can certainly find the open road version of it. Um, and I think that's true of a lot of other writers as well. I think including Sturge, including a lot of uh, important writers. But that's not the same thing as being in people's faces. No, it's not the same thing as being something you're going to stumble across in the bookstore. Yeah, I mean, and one of the pities is, you know, I mean, like. There's this, well, I'm looking at six volumes, I think, is there may be more of the Simek. I mean, uh, in the first of the Simek volumes, which came out last October, they they published the Last Dangerous Vision story that Simek had written. Uh, mm -hmm. I had no head, my eyes were floating away up in the air. No one heard a thing about it. Nope. That, and that should have been news. That should have been very interesting. Uh, so but as there. I say, that uh, well, and, and, and we're talking about writers who had careers beginning in the 40s and uh, continue until the 60s or, in some cases, the 70s. Or in the Silverberg case, a career that began in the 50s and is still going on today. Silverberg can make these decisions. One of the things that I'm concerned about, when the consensus kind of core readership of science fiction, that is, the idea of, okay, if you're going to be a science fiction reader, you'll eventually read everything from Hines and Henderson, um, yeah. you know, from, from, from Asimov to Ross. I think that consensus is, is evaporating, which means you have to actively look for, for antecedent writers that you want to find. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and this is uh, probably uh, in this area we're not talking about, the area of writers more or less, whose careers more or less began and ended between the 70s and around 2000. I think some of those writers... Don't ask me for names because I'd have to think about it for a while. They're even more in danger of disappearing because they weren't in the kind of standard anthologies that the earlier classic writers were. It's true. It's true. You know, the other point that I was going to get to was mm -hmm. the strange case, which we've probably discussed before, the, the strange case of English writers who can't seem to maintain profile in the United States and elsewhere. I mean, we've touched on Mike Harrison, Chris Priest... Macaulay, whoever else. Unfortunately, we are not going to get to them this week. But one question I have before we put this off to uh, to leave our listeners to comment on and make suggestions about, are they as relatively invisible in Australia as they are in the United States? I think so. Ah, that's. And this is also kind of a golden age among literary fiction, you know, the, the, the literary hard science fiction novel that's promoted and, and uh, done brilliantly by writers like Macaulay and Reynolds. 
you would think it would have a following in the United, or, 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 or Mike Harrison probably more than, than anybody. Um, and, and, and the problem, as we suggested a couple of weeks ago when we were talking um, with, with, with uh, James Bradley and Ian Mondes, maybe the problem is, is our local editorships, our local publishers, uh, not the works themselves. Maybe that market has somehow evaporated from the United States and maybe from Australia. Uh, it's, I think it depends sometimes on the work. I mean, I know, for example, I remember having a conversation with Dave Hartwell about mm. the Boulder's Love Quintet by Gwyneth Jones. And mm. his feeling was that Boulder's Love was too British to publish in the United States. And, I mean, I don't know if he's, that's correct. I mean, certainly David saw, and I think it was David, David acquired and published Gwyneth's work through Tor for a while, particularly yeah. the Aleutian books, I think it was. And I know that Nightshade tried and did their very best to publish Boulder's Love in the in the U.S. with to no avail. Right. So, so there's something, and I don't know what it is. I mean, uh, you'd think. I mean, Paul McCauley was published very successfully for a while by I think it was Bantam, uh, yeah, who did the um, Confluence so. books and whatever else. So, for some reason, that that slipped. I mean, I don't know how much of it comes down to nothing more complicated than. The authors aren't physically in the United States, so they're not physically in the face of the individuals who are making the decisions. That could very well be. I don't know. I and mean, I hate to think about um, because most of the individuals who you and I know who make the decisions are intelligent, literate people. Oh, yeah, but they're busy people. Yeah, but they're very busy, yeah, and, they, and they, they need to have people uh, pushing things at them. I think it's... Um, I mean, it's, the it's, other thing is that we have overseen, and we all know this, for the last 20 years, the greatest death of, retraction of, whatever, the middle list of it, you know, that's ever yeah, happened. That's... So a lot of these writers who we were talking about were perhaps naturally inhabiting a middle list that's been decimated. I think that's true. And the middle list also expanded uh, to a much larger area. I mean, the middle list was everything from utter failure up to Selling reasonably well, but not selling phenomenally well. In other words, yeah. uh, a writer who's now considered a midlist writer would have been considered a minor bestseller 20 or 30 years ago. Quite possibly so. Um, and I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not getting Paul McCauley books, but I have a, a huge arc of, of the new Peter Hamilton here, which is going to do very well in the States, I'm pretty sure. I'm sure you're right. Um, so, I mean, I don't know. We shall have to see. I mean, but not this week. I think we've reached the end. <laughs> I think we, we'll have we, a conversation next weekend, and then we'll have a month off. Mm -hmm. And it won't really be that long until I see you in sunny Kansas City, Missouri. And sunny Kansas City, Missouri, which will probably have very warm weather. Uh, I should mention that even in Chicago, as we speak, the temperature was 91 degrees, which is, what, 32, 33 Celsius? Which it's is, higher, I know, yeah. compared to what you get in Perth. No, in no, Perth, it's about, no, I mean, it's about 35 degrees, and that's enough to hurt. It's hot. Um, it's so, yeah. And, I mean, I've been told it's going to be that kind of weather in Rome as well. Ha <laughs> ha. Oh, Rome is really, yeah. Yeah, lovely. Great. I remember um, walking to Rome in very, very warm weather. Florence is okay. Yeah. Um, so, I, I mean, look, you can't complain about going, about going to Rome. Uh, but we shall see about Kansas City. Maybe we'll hide in the air-conditioned splendor. I mean, I've got a fairly short visit there, really, because I'll be taking off on the Sunday you know, early uh, mid-morning. Right, and it won't be as warm as Reno was. So we'll yeah, be that fine. was a bit of a hellhole, wasn't it? 
No, that, that was astonishing. It was completely the the, the 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 wasteland or the bright side crossing. You were on Mercury. That's what Worldcon was like in Reno. With and I made you walk. Yeah, we we actually had to walk outside. On the other hand, Gary, we mm -hmm. go to the, we see the nice people in Kansas. Gonna be nice, lovely people in Kansas. Then we're gonna go to Finland. Finland. Finland in August will be wonderful. As the wonderful people in Monty Python used to say, Finland, 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 the country where I want to be. And, yes. you know, if, if, by the way, you're listening to podcast, you're one of the remaining few, in these dying moments of this episode, we encourage you to join up, to travel to Helsinki next August, and to come hang out and drink Potlfiskisk or something, or, or you know, sort of remember the moments and enjoy work on there. Absolutely. With us, where we With both us. will be. We'll be there eating elk and reindeer meatballs. Yeah, but nothing they've had to bury in the ground. None of that ludifus kind of a stuff. Like no, no, that, that stuff is weird. That stuff's really weird. Nah. And after that bit of cultural bias, we might just sign off. All right. <laughs> and once again, we will chat next week on the Good Street Podcast. Till then. Take care, my friend.